If you've built a great business, it doesn't matter what the market's doing. You can wait out quarks in the market for a year or two and then decide to sell your business later. It's really building that optionality in from having a solid business would be the preferable path. It's also a better stance to negotiate from, knowing you can walk away from the table at any point in time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Growth Stage podcast by FastSpring, where we focus on how SaaS and digital product companies grow revenue, build meaningful products, and increase the value of their business. My name is David Vogelpohl. I support the digital product community as part of my role at FastSpring, and I love to bring the best of the community to you here as co-host on the Growth Stage podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, I think what brands look for when considering acquiring software companies. And uh, in order to have that conversation, we have someone here with us today who knows quite a bit about that. From WP Engine, I'd like to welcome Carl Hargraves. Carl, welcome to Growth Stage. Hey, David. Uh, thank you for having me. Happy to chat on this today. Excellent, excellent. Carl, we're going to talk more about your background in a minute, but I know you're a fellow Texan. And I've been going with a cool places of Texas virtual background theme all summer. I know we're kind of getting into fall now here in Texas, but can you guess the cool place in Texas that is my virtual background? I feel like I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to guess Grouse Springs. Ooh, that's a really nuanced guess. There's actually Spring Lake, which I've never been to, but I've always wanted to go. So I'll have to check that out. Maybe where, where is that? What part of the state? I think it's in between like Austin and San Antonio. I think it's like one of those offshoots there. So um, clear water. So really cool. But uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to visit that next week or next summer. So for those listening and watching, what we're going to talk about today, though, is Carl's views on what makes a software company a good target for an acquisition. What factors beyond financials make a target even more valuable? What are those like it factors? Common operational pitfalls um, that founders might find themselves in if they're going through diligence and how to avoid those. And really also just fundamentally how you think about selling a sellable business. And, you know, uh, Carl's role at WP Engine focuses on this in a big part. And so I'm really looking forward to the insights you're going to bring today, Carl. But first, I'm going to ask you the, the question I ask every guest on Growth Stage. What was the first thing you bought online? Um, the first thing I remember buying online, so TBD if this is actually the first thing, um, but it was an organ, an electric organ, like the musical instrument. Um, so I bought it off Craigslist, probably 16 years old probably around 50 bucks. It was clearly someone who just needed to get out of their garage. And yeah, I still remember picking up this thing and just the experience because you're a 16 year old kid, you show up to this total stranger's house who's like in his 50s, he takes you into his garage. And I'm like, this is just so weird. But um, yeah, we played that organ in a few bands after that. And yeah, it had a good run. Well, I wish I would have known about your electric organ skills. I totally would have had you do that here uh, on the show today. Uh, big, I've actually been listening to a lot of Doors recently. They have a lot of that going on. Um, now, that was something you found online and bought in person. Do you happen to remember the first time you entered a credit card for something online? Oh, see, I was teenage years is all this was taking off. So it's got to be uh cds vinyls music like that was all i was purchasing at that age 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you were buying music back in the day. I know a lot of people are doing file sharing. So that's, uh, that's very admirable of you, Carl. Well, enough about the first thing you bought online, although I did find that riveting. Um, let's jump into a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into a little bit of the strategy discussions we talked about a minute ago. Um, but could you briefly tell me about WP Engine and what your role is there? Yeah, WP Engine, uh, we're the world's most trusted platform for WordPress. Um, so as probably most listeners know, WordPress is a content management system for building websites. It is far and away the most popular way to build a website, 43% of the web. Um, runs on WordPress. Uh, our company was founded 13 years ago to really take a lot of the headaches away from operating a WordPress site at scale. Um, and to this day, we still offer the infrastructure, the security, the developer tools, um, the customer support um, that you're going to need to build, design, power, manage a WordPress site. Um, so yeah, in brief, that's the company. Uh, myself, so I'm a director of corporate development and strategic partnerships. Um, so what this means is I touch both mergers and acquisitions and integrated technology partners. Um, today, we'll focus on the mergers and acquisitions side, um, but I also handle our integrations with things like Cloudflare, New Relic, um, and all the major cloud providers. Very interesting. And of course, I knew a lot of this going into this interview because you and I worked together when I was at WP Engine and had many adventures in some of these areas. Um, and so I thought bringing you on would be really interesting to kind of get your point of view. Um, here at FastSpring, we have a lot of uh, up and coming technology, software and SaaS companies that, you know, think about their exit from time to time. And I figured some uh, inside baseball might be helpful as folks think about that. So tell me about some of the acquisitions your team has led for WP Engine. Like what, what, what were the, obviously the public ones, but uh, which ones were, uh, what were they like and what were some of the companies that were involved? Yeah. So, um, and just a shout out here. I, I think David actually did the first acquisition WP Engine ever pulled off with a wow. studio press and Genesis. So, you know, real recognizing real, um, but uh, yeah, for myself, uh, most recent deal we did was Delicious Brains. Um, so they were a suite of different developer-focused plugins, the most popular being ACF, which I think it has over 2 million installs. Um, just looking at our user base, they really were that sweet spot of ideal customer profile. Um, so we brought them aboard, uh, got to be a little over a year ago. Prior to that, uh, a lot of kind of like acquire acquisitions where we're acquiring a product, but then also bringing the team um, over and kind of forming a scrum team out of what used to be a startup that just works really well and is easy from an integration standpoint. Um, there's Perfect Dashboard in Poland. There was um, Frost and Brian Gardner, who now leads our developer relations team, um, and then Block Lab out of Australia. And then... The largest acquisition we've done and the first one I worked on was Flywheel. Um, they were actually kind of a more design-focused, freelancer-focused competitor of ours. And yeah, that's that's where I cut my teeth on this stuff. Awesome. So for those like unfamiliar with the WordPress space and some of these brands, I guess um, it sounds like this is a collection of things like software companies who have complementary technology that might fit well with your platform and go-to-market motion. You have aqua-hires where the technology is interesting, but also very much so the people, not that the people aren't interesting in everything, but 
the, the lead might be that. And then um, you mentioned Flywheel, which you said was design and freelancer focused, but still in the managed WordPress space, right? And so it was uh, more of a complementary customer base instead of maybe the lead being complementary technology with maybe the exception of something like local, but is, is that a fair way to classify some of the acquisitions you reference? Definitely. All of them kind of have different motivators there. Um, we take a look at a little bit of everything. So it, it's uh, kind of dependent on the opportunity and what we see in that opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. It sounded like there was some, some different scales there too. You had like a larger org, like flywheel, you had kind of mid, maybe mid-size or smaller to mid-size orgs like Studio Press, and then you had kind of one and two-person organizations in that mix. So it sounds like um, you're kind of involved with acquisitions, at least on that side, through a pretty broad range. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. We don't we don't filter out companies based off their size. Like we are primarily interested in technology, talent, um, you know, especially if you're doing something new, unique, like, um, you know, that could be three people in a garage, or that could be 100 people. Um, so that's, that's not part of the criteria. So let's dig a little bit into the process. Can you describe the process for buying and selling a business from a brand? I think like a lot of people think about their exit, maybe, and they think about, I don't know, maybe a future acquisition from a PE firm, or maybe they're ambitious and think they might go public. But how does a brand think about it? What does that process look like? Yeah, yeah. And um how long should it take, by the way? Just like are we talking like weeks, months, years? Like I mean No, no, no. Great question. Great question. Um, so typical time range, anywhere from three months um to six months, um, just to set expectations there. I've seen it go a little bit faster, I've seen it go a little bit slower. But businesses do not sell in a matter of weeks. I've seen scenarios where founders have been looking to sell that fast because of cash flow issues, whatever it might be. Um, in fact, the matter is like the amount of uh, digging and diligence that needs to be done to actually close a transaction. It's going to take at least eight weeks to do that. Let me walk through the process a little bit here. The formal process doesn't kick off um, until you've signed some sort of confidentiality. Um, agreement with the potential acquirer. Um, ahead of that, there may have been informal conversations about, hey, would you ever be open to an acquisition or an investment, something along uh, those lines. However, the process doesn't really get going until parties are ready to share confidential financials, confidential legal information, that sort of data. Um, and the reason that is, is to put together a letter of intent, which is basically like an indicative offer um, on what you would buy the company for, you're going to need access to financials. You're going to need to vet the technology and the operations a little bit. Um, and that can't really get going um, without entering confidentiality. Typically, that sort of preliminary diligence would be the, the technical name for it. It's going to run four to six weeks. If everything's looking good and um, the acquirer you know, gets buy-in at their company to make an offer, uh, they'll present you with basically a non-binding letter of intent. And the reason I'm calling out the non-binding piece is if you've ever put an offer on a house, you can you should realize that the buyer will accept your offer, but 
you don't have to move forward with the transaction. M&A works the same way, um, where by our best estimate at this point in time, we want to move forward with the transaction, but there's still more work to do. Um, and this additional work is called due diligence or conformatory diligence. Here, we're validating all the assumptions that we had to make in the initial business case to put together an offer. So this, this is a lot of digging deep into the financial and legal side. And they're literally going to ask for bank statements. They'll tie the bank statements to your financials, to your like Stripe account, like make sure everything adds up and was represented correctly. And, you know, if due diligence comes out clean, uh, that'll lead to finalized documents and closing of a transaction. Again, this last section normally takes around two months. Um, but yeah, at a high level, that's the simplest the process can run. It can get more complicated when there's multiple potential buyers, et cetera. Um, but that's a brief overview of it. Okay. So that's a really good rundown. So the process fundamentally kicks off. There's some initial discussions. A non-disclosure agreement is signed in order to get the information you need to do diligence, to validate the assumptions I'm guessing on your acquisition thesis or investment thesis are correct. Once there's the non-binding LOI, then that gives you basically kind of like an option period on a house where you can dig a little deeper, further validate that, and then uh, finalize the deal. Is that a good overview of that process? Yeah, it, to keep going with the housing the house analogy, it's like you your offer's been accepted, but you haven't done the inspection on the house yet. So you don't know if there's termites in the walls or what could be going on. Um, so yeah, it gives you that period to really do a thorough um, inspection and confirm every all the assumptions you had to make a, ahead of that point in time. I do want to back up one step real quick and ask you, how does the process start a lot of the time? Like, what are the options? Like, if I'm if I own a business and I'm thinking of selling it, like, am I am I sending you a message on LinkedIn? I'm not trying to fill up your LinkedIn box or anything, but how do these processes usually get started? How could business owners think about like how they're going to go to market their business for sale? Yeah, so the, it can either be buyer initiated or seller initiated. Um, a lot of times if it is seller initiated, they'll actually um, use an advisor or a third party um, to put together an auction process for the business. Um, so typically um, what that looks like is, you know, your advisor will put together some marketing materials, um, put together a long list of the companies that they think would be a good fit as a potential acquirer, um, and then help you with that outreach effort um, and initial screening of candidates. From the brand perspective, it works a little bit differently. Like we're constantly in conversations with different folks in the industry, companies that we think are developing interesting technology or tapping into interesting parts of the market. And we're talking to them about partnerships. We're talking to them just to learn about what they're doing, um, but really just like building those relationships and taking part in the ecosystem. And sometimes those conversations lead to an acquisition offer. So uh, yeah, that's how I'll put it from, from the buyer initiate process. Yeah. So like be present in the industry and communities you participate in and brands that are bigger than you that might be looking for acquisitions, you might meet them. That's a really interesting observation on how that sometimes comes to be. I heard you also mention the advisor, which sounds like it's good for maybe getting multiple buyers, which could improve your valuation. Uh, I'm guessing those advisors also help with preparing for diligence. I remember some of the acquisition journeys 
you and I were on, uh, some of the people are, that were involved with the orgs we were acquiring were kind of, I don't know, maybe surprised at some of the things they had to produce for diligence. Um, but do, do you view advisors as helpful in preparing for that? Yes. Um, and it's going to be dependent on the scale of your business um, because uh, they do not come cheaply. But if you're a seven-figure business, I, I definitely would say start to look into that if you're feeling like you want to kick off a process. Um, now on the smaller side, like the aqua hire side, things can be done a bit more informally. But yeah, I, I think depending on the scale is when you should consider getting advisors involved. Sage advice. Okay, so earlier we recapped some of the acquisitions that you had participated in and led at WP Engine. And I'm just curious, you know, we kind of categorized them a little bit, um, but what are like the high level main reasons why a brand would want to acquire a software or SaaS company or just, I guess, any company for that matter? Yeah, so I'd say there's two big buckets here. Um, there, there are pure financial buyers um, and then there are strategic buyers for financial buyers, just to hit on it quickly. These folks operate kind of like holding companies. They typically have a space they like to play in. Let's say I like veterinary businesses and I'm just interested in scaling the size of veterinary businesses um, that I own. That comes down to literally, does the expected future cash flows uh, sum up to more than what I'm paying for the business today? Um, just a pure financial exercise. On the other side of the house, strategic buyers. This is really about acceleration of kind of three to five year strategic plans, entry into new markets, entry into new product areas, primarily is where you see a lot of this. Um, so it, it is really more an exercise in understanding the company's direction, the company's roadmap and saying, are there things out in the ecosystem that's really going to add more fuel to the fire and allow us to accomplish this faster? I love that way of thinking about it, right? Like the pure financial buyers. I love the holding company uh, example for that one. And then to hear you think talk about strategic buyers, because I think a lot of times what people think about is, well, will my technology make their technology better? you know, one plus one, does that equal three? Like that's the fundamental principle there. But you also called out things like new markets, new buyers. And so I think this is another area where people might not realize they have strength in their company, which is that if they have, you know, large customer bases in a region where an acquiring company doesn't have customers there, that could be a fast path to enter there. So it is more than just technology additions for strategic buyers. Is that how you look at it? Hundred percent, especially like your your geographic um, example is perfect. So imagine my company wants to start operations in Latin America. We don't have customer support in Spanish. We do not have sales in Spanish. We don't even have like a presence in the market. Um, if we can go out and find a company that's already established in the market and is operating effectively. That takes a lot of the risk out of the equation for us entering the market, starting a team from scratch. Things like that are, are, are great areas for M&A. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And it reminds me of the Fastspring acquisition because, it, it, the, the, again, kind of getting back to the idea that uh, the WP Engine and Fastspring platform had kind of some core similarities, but then some you know unique differences. And so this was, I would guess, strategic. I'm guessing that's almost all that you do. 
But what are some of the other factors that go into considering um, an acquisition of a, I'm going to throw a quote here, competitor, other than just the financials, other than just, you know, acquiring market share or something like that? Yeah. Um, This is like going to be the textbook answer for you. Typically, and you described it as the one plus one equals three um, sort of equation that people talk about with M&A. For a competitor, you're going to make that work through cost synergies. Um, Because you're acquiring a business that's extremely similar to your own, you're going to have areas of overlap, areas of optimization um, that you'll be able to lean into. So for example, do we have a vendor in common? Do I have better pricing with that vendor? Can you then inherit that pricing from me? That's a cost synergy. Of course, you don't need two CFOs. You don't need two of a lot of things. So, you know, if there's a founding team that's going to leave um, after the acquisition, that that could be an additional um, synergy. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of areas. You can look at the efficiency of customer service and say, hey, we actually know how to do this more efficiently. Can we teach this other organization and then um, realize more synergies that way? Um, with a competitor, that's kind of fertile ground to lean into for an acquisition. When competitive acquisitions become even more interesting is when you identify what's unique about that competitor. Are they selling to a different buyer? Does their go-to-market motion look a little different? Do they actually have some products you don't have? And is there a way you can lean into that longer term to actually make that one plus one equals three? Um, you know, if I was teaching someone how to do my job, I'd say make a base case and on the base case, it's just cost synergies and make the math work that way. What you actually want to achieve is that, but then also long-term revenue synergies of expanding your market, expanding your TAM. You know me, Carl, I always love the growth story. So we have this notion of synergies with acquiring competitors. And we know that one of them is that we don't have to double spend. I like the example of the founding team, you know, having an exit after the acquisition. You know, and I think as founders, I'm sure a lot of folks are anxious about their team during an acquisition. And I know some acquiring parties, you know, are better than others at retaining existing employees. We don't have to get into all that, although I know WP Engine has an excellent track record there. But what I really get excited about is like when I think about, you know, if you have two orgs serving a market in a similar way, if you bring them together, you don't have to have one team working on feature X and, a, and another team working on a similar version of feature X. You can just have one of those teams work on feature X and the remaining team work on feature Y. So I feel like a big part of that growth synergy thesis for a lot of folks is being able to get to the end faster. I don't know if you've experienced that often or how you think about it from the kind of long-term growth perspective. The ideal scenario is you kind of take the best pieces of both organizations and you lean into that. I think especially like your example was from the product um, and engineering perspective. And that's definitely true. You can, you can discover things that you, that, that the other party was doing that were great ideas that your team hasn't, hadn't come across yet. 
Um, so that's definitely true, but also go to market motions. Um, you'll find that like team structures are different. Um, and actually, as you start breaking into like efficiency of marketing spend, you know, the, the acquiree or maybe the acquirer may be doing things in a much more efficient way. Um, so it's really about like taking the learnings from both organizations and like mind melding them <laughs> to create, you know, <laughs> something a bit better. Totally. Um, okay. So I'm curious then for like technology focused acquisitions, as a company has X and that would be a good fit with us. Um, what are some of the high level factors involved with those? Yeah, this goes back to fit on the company's existing strategy. Um, and I think this is from where I sit, we're in the WordPress ecosystem. There are tens of thousands of plugins. There are thousands of SaaS companies out there and our users leverage the, uh, these products. So there, there's so many areas we can move into. Um, I think what's critical is for us to maintain focus of what do we think are the best market opportunities and what are the market opportunities we're already leaning in towards um, and using M&A as a, an accelerator for realizing um, those outcomes. Um, so it is really, uh, as I'm looking at different technology companies, it is really where do they slot into to our plans for, for a certain space? Um, so it, a lot of it's fit. Uh, you can't make that up. Uh, it, a, a little bit is serendipity as far as like, okay, is there actual alignment in the the market opportunities these two companies are going after? There, there's a factor here of timing and luck and just like uh, things lining up right. It's hard to manufacture. Uh, it, it just has to happen. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Um, I also liked how you kind of start with, well, what's our existing strategy and roadmap and thinking of acquisitions as a way to accelerate that. It also sounded like you touched on potentially opening up new opportunities, uh, maybe something that wasn't uh, on your existing, but starting with the existing. So it feels like if you have a so software SaaS company, understanding potential buyers, where it looks like their roadmap is headed and how you might fit in could be a good way to think about how potential acquiring customers might might be in your future, or co companies might be in your future. So I've had many acquisition adventures, even, even beyond WP Engine. And I can remember from the past in diligence, stumbling across folks that hadn't, you know, done their taxes right or something like that. What are, what are some of the other common pitfalls that, you know, folks run into during diligence where they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize X. Yeah, this is, this is where the, the war stories start to come out. And you realize they're all, you know, uh, they're all unique. Like there's so many quirks. Uh, yeah, about... of course, please, names and companies, uh, leave yeah, that out. Course. Yeah, love some war stories. <laughs> um, but really common, um, if you have gone out and you have raised debt, um, you have raised equity, um, being really familiar um, with the covenants of those debt agreements um, and also like the, the term sheets um, you got from investors. Um, a lot of times founders won't have taken the lens of what those agreements, what repercussions they could have on a potential acquisition um, as far as kind of like, does the bank that made the loan actually need to approve the acquisition? Like that can happen. Does an investor get a, a right to be informed or do they actually have to consent for the transaction to happen? 
you see it. Um, it, it can range depending on the terms, but um, really being familiar with what those terms are is critical. And then aside from that, there are a lot of dependent on geography, um, depending on what um, you know state you're incorporated in, what country you're incorporated in, where you're doing business. Um, there's a lot of regional corks. Um, these typically have to do with taxes, as you just called out but also benefits. So a lot of times, I think as I was describing the process before, um, the acquirer won't have an understanding of this when they were doing their initial assessment. And then as they're digging in and really doing due diligence, they'll start to realize like, oh, there's actually significant additional costs because we have to pay out X benefits or X sales tax. And frankly, um, that's going to come off uh, whatever the initial offer was um, to keep the acquirer whole. So that's definitely something to be aware of. Um, best way to get ahead of that is talk to people in your regional markets who have sold businesses. They'll tell you, here's what you've got to watch out for. And then, of course, if you're already further along the process, there's going to be region-specific counsel who will know this stuff in and out. So the way this plays out then would be something like you do diligence, you do discover they have employees in X locations, you discover they maybe haven't been compliant regarding the way they pay them and in things like your share of it or income tax type compliance, and that could cause a problem. And then you also mentioned things like sales and VAT tax, yeah. where again, you might discover as part of the process, maybe they're not being, that's a, a sweet spot for me because Fast Springs and Merchant of Record, we handle that for our customers. Yep. But these are the kind of things that pop up that you might not have realized. But when somebody's going to go put up, you know, seven, eight figures or something like that or more, um, they're going to check and make sure is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. The, this stuff will get uncovered. And they'll actually, um, typically, there'll be a holdback. A certain amount of money will be held back to actually cover for anything that's unforeseen. So if a year later we find out there was a bunch of VAT tax that wasn't actually paid, um, we'll actually have a, a pot of money that's set aside to handle that sort of thing. Okay. And I'm guessing that pot gets bigger the more risk you see in the, the, the diligence. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, again, it's something that gets negotiated, but uh, yeah, that is one way to, to deal with risk. So we've talked about kind of build, building a, a sellable business a lot of this interview. And, you know, I've, I've talked to founders that kind of approach it in different ways. I've talked to those who on day one were, were building a sellable business. And I've talked to others who were really focused on building a great business, a great product, a great team. And they didn't pay attention to all the nuances that would make their diligence perfect. Which version is the most viable? What I would say is, is this. The best position you're going to be in is if you build a great business, you will always have the option to sell. Um, and you will then build in the ability to choose when you want to go out and sell. Um, if you are building a business just with the notion of, hey, I'm going to flip this in two years, I see that this, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a short term trend I'm going to take advantage of. You're really, it depends on what the market does, depends on your options. If you've built a great business, it doesn't matter what the market's doing. You can wait out, um, you know, corks in the market for a year or two and then decide to sell your business later. Um, it's really building that optionality in 
um, from having a solid business would be the preferable path. It's also a better stance to negotiate from, knowing you can walk away from the table at any point in time. I like that. So build a great business and you'll always have always have options. Um, I think that's that's really sound um, as folks think about, you know, how to structure their business and then really what they're building it around. Okay. So uh last question. What are the top two or three things you recommend software founders keep in mind when building a sellable business? We hit on the first one, like uh best practice is keep a long list of potential acquirers. If you see an acquisition as the ultimate exit for your business, make that long list early and start building connections, start understanding what those companies are up to. Because that's, A, the relationships are going to make an eventual deal easier to get done um, if you have the rapport. And then B, like the understanding of what those companies are up to will actually inform a bit of the decisions you make about the the products you build and just how you build up your company. Um, So I would always say keep a long list, probably have like an A, B and C tier of these are who I think could ultimately be interested um, is best practice. Also, to your previous question, don't put yourself in a position where you need to sell. That is a really weak start to a negotiation we'd hit on this also MA is very situational things really have to line up of i need to be very have a lot of conviction around my strategy to be making a, a big investment in a certain area um so timing on that is, is going to be very situational um so you'd rather be in a position where you, you can wait um until until people come and knock and and then lastly i'd say as you're making big decisions about your company, um, the type of products you're going to build, the, t- the type of business models and ways you're going to monetize, consider the ultimate impact to enterprise value. So for example, you know, services are valued at completely different multiples um, than like a SaaS business. Um, people who monetize in GMV are valued completely differently. Um, you want to have an understanding of how taking your business in different directions is going to impact the ultimate outcome. To talk about the previous point of the long list, you also want to know if those businesses would be a good fit for people on the long list. Maybe they don't touch businesses that go into services. So you're really going to limit your options if you go in a direction like that. Um, so that would be my advice. Okay, I got it. So we're going to keep up. We're going to start early and maintain a long list of potential acquirers, start to build those relationships, keep tabs on what they're up to. Uh, We're going to try not to get in a position where we need to sell. (laughs) That makes a ton of sense. Obviously, you (laughs) command a better valuation. Um, And then I really liked how you pointed out that when you're making big decisions, think about how those decisions might support your own valuation in the long term, and then also how it might layer into your uh, kind of running list of potential acquirers. Sounds like a good operating system, at least from the high level. But uh, this has been very informative, though. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about all this stuff, Carl. Yeah, of course. It's been fun. Um, You know, this is every day for me. So I I love talking about it and, you know, happy to come back if you want to dive deeper sometime. Excellent. Well, I hope folks enjoy the inside look at how brands think about acquiring SaaS and software companies. 
Thanks everyone for joining today. If you'd like to learn more about what Carl is up to, you can visit WPEngine.com. Thanks everyone for joining us on the Growth Stage podcast. If you'd like to learn more about FastSpring and how we can help you sell digital products globally, automatically stay tax compliant and be ready for that diligence and keep your focus on your products, visit FastSpring.com. Thanks everyone.